0: For my Media, This Is Missing in Alaska, the story of two congressmen who vanished in 1972, and my quest to figure out what happened to them. I'm your host, John Walzak. March 4th, 1974, Tucson, Arizona. The sun is setting. The temperature sinks below 60. There's a light breeze. It's early in the evening at the El Dorado Lodge, a luxurious desert resort. A gorgeous tree-lined road leads up to a complex of old, stone-clad buildings. Tranquil mountains lurk in the distance. Sitting at a bar is Tom Davis, a detective with the Arizona Department of Public Safety. He's joined by a supervisor and a reporter. They're all undercover.
1: And it's a U-shaped bar. And on one side is the public side. On the other side is a room. And it's just, you know, it's just an alcove. Well, if you sat on the public side, you could see what was going on in the alcove. Lo and behold, here comes this party. And it's Jerry and his wife and is uh, one of the people that he had gone to Anchorage with. And, you know, it, it, for me, being a brand-new guy, this was fascinating.
0: Jerry is Jerome Jerry Max Paisley, a 33-year-old murderer and bomber with close ties to two prominent mafia families.
1: So we sat there, and we just kept making notes and watching all the activities and the pictures being taken— And boom, it's noted that Jerry married Peggy.
0: Peggy is Peggy Begich, the widow of Congressman Nick Begich. At the time of the wedding, did you know who Peggy was? I
1: probably did, but I probably didn't put any significance to it.
0: Were you aware at the time of the wedding that Peggy was the widow of a missing congressman?
1: Uh, Yeah, but it didn't take it seriously. Why? Because it was a, it it was an accident, plane crash.
0: Pause for a minute. Let this sink in. 16 months and 16 days after her husband, a U.S. congressman, disappeared in Alaska, Peggy Begich married Jerry Paisley, a mobster, at a wedding in Arizona. It sounds sensational. It is sensational. But I want to be clear. It's true. It's not some baseless conspiracy. It did happen. I have a copy of the marriage license and photos of the reception. In fact, I have the original photos. Tom Davis gave them to me.
1: The pictures I gave you with Jerry, that's the last I have, Uh, unless I resurrect. uh, Those are the originals I took and sent to you. But you can look at the paper and tell. That, that came out of the book, is, out of the Bible. This is from your Bible? Yep. That's the last existing piece.
0: Davis, who had a distinguished 36-year career in law enforcement, worked on a small team that battled organized crime in Arizona. He had a secret book, a so-called Bible, which listed about 100 local mobsters and their associates. In the Bible was Jerry Paisley. Man, Paisley, where to start? He's so important to this story. I need to tell you about him, his history, his personality, his shocking claims. But I don't want to glorify him. He was a murderer and a bomber, an abusive, violent man. He doesn't deserve glory. Paisley was born in Detroit in 1941. He grew up in a bad neighborhood. As a teen, he enlisted in the Navy. I don't know much about his early years, just bits and pieces I picked up along the way, but I can share with you an incident that occurred when he was 19, a violent attack that illustrates the rough, jagged nature of his life from birth to death. On May 3, 1960, Paisley was hitchhiking in California when four men accosted him. Using either a razor or a sharp piece of glass, Paisley wasn't sure which, they carved a four-inch cross and two letters Zs into his arm. Thankfully, the wounds were superficial. He didn't need stitches. Two years later, after the Navy discharged him, Paisley returned to Detroit. That's where he started working for the Licavoli family, an organized crime syndicate led by Pete Horseface Licavoli Sr. That's also where he befriended Pete Sr.'s sons, especially Pete Jr. In fact, the two men got close enough that, in 1974, Pete Licavoli Jr. attended Paisley's wedding to Peggy Begich. Pete Jr. and his wife, Kathy, even traveled with Peggy and Paisley on their honeymoon in Mexico. The Licavolis were a mid-tier mob family, nothing special. Mid-century, they moved from Detroit to Tucson. Paisley went with them. Soon thereafter, another much more famous mafia family also moved to Tucson, the Bananos. Remember Vito Corleone, Marlon Brando's character from The Godfather? Corleone was based, in part, on famed Mafia Don Joe Bonanno Sr. During the 60s, in Tucson, Paisley befriended Bonanno's sons, Bill and Joe Jr. He was captivated by the family's flashy infamy and gritty glamour. In 1971, he even made a brief cameo in Honor Thy Father, a bestseller on the Bonanos written by legendary author Gay Talese. I asked Talese, who's 88, if he remembers Paisley. He said he doesn't. That was a long time ago. The Bananos were not only celebrities in Tucson, they were well-known throughout the nation. Joe Sr. was, quite literally, the Big Cheese, a nickname he got by sinking his teeth into the dairy industry. Laugh, go ahead. But there was a lot of money to be made in the cheese trade, counterfeit mozzarella, money laundering, stuff like that. Banano was a big deal, one of the most important mafiosos in American history, the patriarch of one of the so-called Five Families, which dominated organized crime in New York City during the early 20th century. Bonanno saw himself as a gentleman. He liked to say that he lived by old-school values. Booze, but not narcotics. Murder, sure, but only if you deserved it. But he distorted reality. The Bonanno family was brutal. They were violent gangsters. They maimed and murdered and bombed and extorted and kidnapped and committed fraud. Later, they tried to rehabilitate their image, but Joe Bonanno didn't become Joe Bonanno by being a polite man who just dabbled in bootlegging. For three decades, from the 1930s to 1960s, Bonanno held an iron grip on his family. His stranglehold began to unravel in the mid-60s when he got greedy and tried to assassinate rival mob bosses. The plot failed, igniting a bloody mob war called the Banana War, or, as the press sarcastically dubbed it, the Banana Split. See, one of Bonanno's nicknames, which he absolutely hated, was Joe Bananas, hence the name of his signature war. At one point during the war, Bonanno was kidnapped, and for a while, he disappeared. It's thought, though, that he staged the kidnapping, in order to avoid testifying before a grand jury. When he eventually resurfaced, he decided to make a strategic retreat to Tucson, where he, quote, retired. But that was bullshit. He was diminished but not dead, and he certainly wasn't retired. I know I'm throwing a million names at you, so let's recap. We have A. Jerry Paisley, who married Peggy Begich, the widow of Congressman Nick Begich, in 1974. B. The Licavolis, a mid-tier mob family from Paisley's hometown of Detroit who relocated to Tucson and for whom Paisley worked. And C. The Bananos, a famous mob family from New York who also relocated to Tucson and for whom Paisley also worked. Jerry Paisley, the Licavolis, the Bananos, they're all tied together. But why Tucson? It seems random, right? An odd place for the mob? To me, not really. It's sunny, it's pretty, removed from the violence of Chicago and New York and Detroit. It makes sense. And Arizona had lax laws, which allowed the mob to easily launder money.
2: Arizona was Switzerland in the United States. Arizona had a blind trust system in its banking system that allowed people to hide monies here just as effectively as they could in in Switzerland. And the, the, the blind trust accounts that could be set up with laundered money The bank accounts themselves could also own real estate. And when I first began working over here in the early 70s, maybe 40% of Maricopa County was owned by number. And nobody knew who owned anything. It was all through blind trust accounts in a bank.
0: That's Don Devereaux, a seasoned investigative reporter in Arizona who covered organized crime for decades. He's best known for his never-ending investigation into the 1976 assassination of reporter Don Bowles, who was killed in Phoenix by a car bomb, something we'll cover later. Devereaux also dug into both the Bonanno and Licavoli families. With two major mob families in Tucson, you'd figure there would be some bitter rivalry. So many angry egos crammed into a small desert city. But that wasn't the case.
2: When Licavoli moved out here from Detroit, um, he was a friend of Joe's and and, and invited the Licavoli and lots of other mob people from around the country to move to Tucson or Phoenix to retire. Lick and largely came to the Tucson area uh, to, to retire. Anna was still active when he was living in Tucson, but Lick and largely had left Detroit behind. And there was a retired mob guy living comfortably in Tucson, um, on a place called the Grace Ranch, as I, I recall, with his family, uh, and close friends of Bonano. And close enough, they, you know, they shared the same accountant. Um, they were, you know, there were no secrets between those guys. They were, uh, most friends and not competitors and, you know, happily, uh, you know, seeing each other as, as good friends.
0: Yet even though the Bananos and Licavolis maintained peace between their respective families, their presence was detrimental to Tucson as a whole. In the late 60s, the city became a spot for mob violence, most notably a series of high-profile bombings. Many of these bombings were tied to extortion attempts, insurance scams, and vigilante payback. The motivation behind some, though, was more complicated. In July 1968, the homes of both Joe Bonanno Sr. and Pete Licavoli Sr. were bombed.
2: Uh, There was a war started between Bonanno and Licavoli by a rogue FBI agent named David Hale back in the day. Hale began planting bombs on both the Bonanno and the Licavoli people, as if they were fighting back and forth between themselves, trying to start some sort of an internet scene mob war between Licavoli and Bonanno. And it obviously didn't work, and David Hale got exposed as having, you know, done this himself as an FBI agent.
0: David Hale denied that he was behind the bombings. Hale was never convicted of any crime tied to the bombings. He didn't respond to interview requests. In 1968, someone also bombed the house of a prominent judge named Ivo De Concini had been friends with Joe Bonanno. But later, when his son Dennis was elected to the US Senate, he distanced himself from the mob boss. I just said, someone bombed Judge Deconcini's home. But guess who that someone was? Jerry Paisley. The same Jerry Paisley who, only six years later, would marry Peggy Begich. Several sources told me Paisley was behind the Deconcini bombing. Paisley was something of a fixer, they said, a wannabe gangster. He was, technically, a mobster, but low in seniority, more the guy you turn to to break some legs or chuck some dynamite over a fence than the mastermind of any operation. To my knowledge, he was responsible for at least three bombings, including the DeConcini bombing. So how on earth did Jerry Paisley, a mobster who bombed a judge's house, end up marrying Peggy Begich, the widow of a missing congressman? How did they meet? The official story is this. In late 1973, about a year after Nick Begich vanished, Peggy was with a friend at the Holiday Inn in Anchorage when she ran into Paisley, who was tending bar. They hit it off, and a few months later, in March 1974, they got hitched in Tucson. I've already told you why the mob was in Tucson. But why was the mob in Alaska in the 70s? Why was Jerry Paisley in Alaska in the 70s? One word, oil. After the discovery of oil in 1968 at Prudhoe Bay, Alaska boomed. Everything in modern Alaska history can be split into pre-1968 and post-1968. Pre-1968, Alaska was scenic and had timber and bears. A stereotype, sure, but... People in the lower 48 didn't really care about it, except for its natural beauty, some of its resources, and at the height of the Cold War, its strategic location near the Soviet Union. Post-1968, Alaska was an oil state, a state with immense wealth waiting to be tapped, a state with mounds of money just waiting to be pumped into people's pockets. Pre-1968, there was crime, but it wasn't exorbitant. Post-1968, it boomed. Pre-1968, you could still find affordable housing. Post-1968, with a crush of new workers, you couldn't. It was during this boom atmosphere in 1970 that Alaskans first elected Nick Begich to the U.S. House. Begich had run a campaign promising to maximize oil prosperity, but importantly, he also acknowledged the problems it stirred up. Here's an ad he ran in 1970. You
3: don't have to be an economist to know that we have a critical housing shortage. All you have to do is try to find a place to live. Five years ago, the typical monthly payments for a $20,000 home would be about $100. Now, a $20,000 home, that's if you can find one, would be well over $200 a month. America's leading housing official recently stated that less than 20% of Americans can really afford to buy a home. That's the problem nationwide. Alaska's situation is worse. There are practical solutions. Nick Begich finds practical solutions. As a state senator, he's been doing it for eight years. And he's been vocal about it. Nick Begich has always wanted you to know where he stood. He still does. Nick Begich is Alaska's man for Congress.
0: Begich went on to help pass the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, or ANCSA, a monumental piece of legislation that removed a major obstacle blocking construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. But the pipeline still faced countless legal, political, and environmental hurdles. It wasn't until March 1975, two and a half years after Begich vanished, that construction finally began.
3: Tomorrow morning, after years of planning, court fights, and stockpiling of materials, construction of the Alaska oil pipeline begins. It will run almost 800 miles from the north slope of Alaska to the port of Valdez. The pipeline is supposed to be finished in about two years at a cost of at least $6 billion. The big boom is already underway in Alaska. Ask the people in the city of Fairbanks, for example. Jack Perkins did, and here is his report. It used to be in Fairbanks that keeping the snow shoveled off the roof was one of the main problems. But today, with the coming of the pipeline, Fairbanks is a boom town, and there are new problems they never thought of here before. Used to be in Fairbanks. You could make a telephone call. Right away. Without having to try for an hour. Without getting buzzed off but with the pipeline the local phone system is flooded with 54 percent more calls than a year ago and can't handle them used to be you could get an apartment nothing fancy but shelter for a couple hundred dollars now rents have doubled and tripled one bedroom 500 a month and hardly anything available vacancy rate in Fairbanks about zero and consider crime rates always a drinking town, but arrests for drunkenness now up 135%. Juvenile arrests up 50%. Robberies up 123%. And with all the pipeline workers passing through town with their rolls of money, prostitution arrests up 700%.
0: Many of the people who moved to Alaska long before the oil boom were upset to see their pristine home changing so rapidly.
3: What you're getting here, of course, is what what they call progress, isn't it? Uh, That's one name for it. I've heard other names uh, for it which uh, might not be arable. It happens to cities, this bursting and straining toward what is sometimes called progress. But maybe nowhere has it ever happened so much and so fast. And it's not just that people of Fairbanks weren't ready for it. It's that many of them don't want it at all. Jack Perkins, NBC News. Fairbanks,
0: Alaska. Two years later, in June 1977, construction on the pipeline wrapped up. Oil mania reached a fever pitch. Now the riches could really flow.
1: There's oil in the pipeline, the Trans-Alaska pipeline this evening. Pump station number one at Prudhoe Bay, 250 miles north of the Arctic Circle, today began pushing heated crude oil into the pipe. Don Oliver was there.
3: Here it is, finally finished after eight years of planning and building. The oil companies rattle off all sorts of superlative statistics about it. 800 miles long, built by a peak workforce of more than 21,000. From one end to the other, it will hold 380 million gallons of oil. The cost? Nearly $8 billion. The largest, most expensive project ever attempted by private enterprise.
0: Okay. So, again, by this point, it should be blatantly obvious why the mob, and Jerry Paisley specifically, came to Alaska in the 70s. Oil. Oil is what drew the mob to Alaska. Oil is what drew Paisley to Alaska. It was a black gold rush. Here's Mike Grimes, a retired cop who worked for the Anchorage Police Department.
4: That was the period when Alaska was just booming. It was like a gold rush town because it oil uh, pipeline being constructed so much money up there they had such a dramatic increase in population and everybody coming from somewhere else uh, to get rich in Alaska and so it was a very fascinating time to be working vice and there was only three of us on the vice squad at that time and uh we had such an influx of prostitution, mainly off the West Coast. So the prostitution uh, industry was just booming up there. And, uh, the gambling, we were having people come from all over with organized crime behind them uh, from other states and set up uh, underground gambling joints in Anchorage. And, uh, and then after hours, Uh, clubs that were illegally serving alcohol. So uh, we were inundated with a three-man bike squad.
0: It was a wild time, and Paisley and the mob wanted to cash in. Drugs, sex work, you name it. Paisley moved to Alaska in 1973 with his close friend, Sal Spinelli. Like Paisley, Spinelli was a mobster with ties to both the Licavoli and Bonanno crime families. When Paisley wed Peggy Begich in March, 1974, Spinelli was his best man. After the wedding, when Peggy, Paisley, and Spinelli returned to Anchorage, Spinelli opened a jewelry store with Peggy's oldest son, Nick Beggetts, Jr. Multiple law enforcement sources told me the store was a front for stolen jewelry, including turquoise trafficked from Arizona to Alaska. Nick Begis Jr., now a well-known conspiracy theorist, was only a teenager at the time. He declined interview requests. He was never convicted of any crime pertaining to the theft of jewelry. And again, he was only a kid, a kid who lost his dad and ended up with a violent new stepfather, Jerry Paisley. As Paisley settled into married life, Peggy Begich, now Peggy Paisley, showered him with money. After Nick, her first husband, disappeared, Peggy had received a windfall of cash, according to documents I found archived at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. There was a $55,000 life insurance policy, which had a double indemnity clause for accidental death, so $110,000 from that. And there was a one-time $42,500 benefit from Congress. Plus the balance of Nick's checking and retirement accounts. Altogether, Peggy got at least $158,431.07, about a million dollars today when adjusted for inflation. She inherited other things too, including apartment buildings. Peggy spent much of that money on her new husband, Paisley, the newlyweds' honeymoon in Mexico. They were joined on that trip, as I said earlier, by Pete Licavoli Jr. and his wife, Kathy. Peggy bought Paisley expensive jewelry and fancy cars too, including a Cadillac Eldorado and a Jaguar XKE. She also bought him a bar. In May 1974, two months after Peggy and Paisley wed, they started a business called Max Inc. I obtained the company's records from the state of Alaska. Peggy was the president, Paisley was the secretary-treasurer, and another man, whom I'll discuss later, was the vice president. Max Inc. operated a bar in Anchorage called the Alaska Mining Company, the type of watering hole that minted money during the oil boom. It had previously been called the Green Dragon. Here, again, is Mike Grimes, the retired Anchorage cop who worked vice in the 70s.
4: I heard Paisley was involved in the, what was it called, Alaska Mining Company, before it was the Green Dragon, that he was involved in that place with the baggages, And I said, God, what are they doing with this scumbag? You know, because, uh, I mean, I was a lifelong Alaskan. You know, Nick Begge was my congressman.
0: — Peggy and Paisley's marriage wasn't exactly common knowledge, at least to the general public. But a good number of politically connected folks and members of law enforcement knew about it. Perhaps this is a good time to pause, to examine why the marriage is even newsworthy at all. Because I know what people will say. They'll say I'm reporting it because it's salacious. They'll say I'm trying to sex up this story in order to sell it. But that's not true. They don't know what I know. At first glance, Peggy Begich seems to be a sympathetic character. A woman whose husband vanished. A woman who became a single mother to six kids. A woman who's now a grandmother in her 80s. Typically, her personal life would be none of my business. Sure, she ran for Congress several times after Nick disappeared. So she was, for a while, a public figure. But that's not why I'm reporting this. So bear with me, we have a ways to go. I also want to be clear about something else. I'm not reporting everything I know. I learned a lot, but certain things, while salacious, aren't pertinent to this story and I'm purposely leaving them out. Also, one more thing. Mark Begich, Peggy's son, served for six years in the US Senate. So let me say too that I have no political agenda here. In fact, I think Mark was a good senator. And he was just a kid when all of this happened, a kid traumatized by the loss of his father. Peggy Begich and Mark Begich declined multiple interview requests. Living large on Peggy's money, Paisley spiraled out of control. By 1976, he was heavily into drugs.
5: When Jerry was uh, married to Peggy, he just couldn't leave the cocaine alone, and it's just the cocaine and the women and this and that, and it just, it was terrible to to watch the deterioration of his and Peggy's relationship. I felt sorry for Peggy, you know, she got herself into something that she probably had no idea.
0: Do you know if she knew of his background, really, when they got married?
5: I would say she did not, but I have no way of knowing for sure.
0: That's Paisley's friend, George Schaefer.
5: I've known Paisley since the early 60s. Uh, I probably knew him better than anybody in Alaska.
0: Schaefer met Paisley in Arizona sometime around
5: 1964. He owned a, uh, a bar. It was a, uh, called the Cabaret Lounge in Tucson, Arizona and uh at that time there was a lot of things going on with the uh, well there was all those bombings in Tucson uh they were there was a f- group of people that were coming in and trying to get a uh, protection racket uh, on with some of the local bar owners around the town and i was kind of brought in and used as a little bit of a muscle for them just uh they were coming in and intimidating the uh, borrowers themselves and just trying to get them to pay protection money like they did back east and it doesn't work that well in the west <laughs> so that's how i originally met paisley he was kind of on the other side And we kind of became friends, but uh, not not to any great extent.
0: When you say he was kind of on the other side, what do you mean by that? Well, he
5: he was associated with uh, several of the uh, so-called mafia people, mainly the Bananos. And and uh, Lake
0: Paisley Schaefer said was a quote crazy person.
5: Wherever he went, he caused trouble. As far as the, the deal with Peggy, she did buy him that uh, mining company, which is the bar. I guess you know, you're well aware that I got shot there.
0: I I don't know the details. I I do know that you were shot there.
5: Okay. Well, I was shot there by somebody, you know, that no one knew. I mean, it was just a, an incident that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Paisley had a partner in the bar. Long, you know, his wife gave him that more or less as a wedding gift uh, as far as the ownership in the bar. His partner was a real straight ace guy, would never break the law. In fact, when I went there to go to work the only reason he called me in is because his regular bouncer from Phoenix Ron Moyer was his name and he had cleaned the bar up as far as riffraff and all that well he he worked two years had to go on vacation Jerry wanted me to work there for the two weeks while he was on vacation and I originally said no And then he talked me into it anyway. So I I was just supposed to be paid under the table for two weeks. And his partner said, oh, no, we can't do that. We need to put him on the payroll. Uh, we got to keep everything above board. And so uh, I was lucky that I was on workman comp when I got shot. But Danny Zemanich was the guy's name, his partner's name.
0: Daniel Max Zivinich was the third person who had an ownership stake in Max, Inc., the business Peggy and Paisley started after they got married. Zivinich was the company's vice president. The company was called Max, Inc. because both Zivinich and Paisley shared the same middle name, Max. Zivinich is a key figure in this story, someone you'll hear about in later episodes. He's still alive. He owns a popular bar in Anchorage. He declined multiple requests for an on-the-record interview. In late 1976, Peggy and Paisley got divorced. Newly single, Paisley moved back to Arizona. For the next 15 years, he was in and out of prison on a variety of charges, including aggravated assault. Sometime around 1992, he was paroled, and he got a job in Phoenix selling cars. —
5: There was a a deal where another guy got out of prison that he was in with uh, after a few months. They got together and Uh, There was a gal involved a little bit. I don't know. He's told me the details, and I've forgotten them, except that he ended up killing that guy and was going to kill. He told me that he pointed the gun. uh, I guess he killed a couple guys, two of them in the front seat, and he pointed the gun at the girl, and it jammed and didn't go off. Uh, So he didn't kill her. But anyway, now he's wanted by the law, and that's when he came to live with me, uh, just for a few weeks. And I got him a job where they didn't even want to know his name, and it was cash into the table. Well, he, he destroyed any, anything, any kind of friendship we ever had, because he ended up uh, robbing some people while he was there. And of course he left left my truck at the Seattle airport. I was on vacation, left my truck at the Seattle airport. I had to go get it, and then I had to explain to the sheriffs. but uh, there was a he was on the ten most wanted, and they called him jealous Jerry. Well, he got so mad about that because that wasn't the story at all. It had nothing to do with the girl, or he he didn't have any affair with her or nothing, but so that's motivated him to turn himself in. And that was in 1993.
0: You just heard Schaefer say Paisley was on the 10 Most Wanted list, presumably the famous FBI list. Other people told me Paisley was on America's Most Wanted. Neither is accurate. In fact, Paisley was on a show called Prime Suspect, Think of it as a kind of ripoff of America's Most Wanted. We tried to dig up the segment to share it with you, but we couldn't find it. When it aired, sometime in 1992 or 93, Paisley was living with George Schaefer, hiding out from the cops in Eagle Creek, Oregon, about 30 minutes southeast of Portland. By that point, he had murdered at least five people. And he still had murder on his mind.
5: I'll tell you another interesting story before we go uh, just... Uh, I I don't know if you're interested in it, but it was was an obsession that that Jerry had. While he was in Oregon, he was obsessed with wanting to kill a dentist in Safford, Arizona. And evidently, the dentist had uh, done something to him uh, while he was in prison in Arizona. He was sent down there to have a tooth pulled or something, and the, the guy wouldn't give him enough Novocaine. And then he told Jerry, I'm here to extract pain on you, not make you feel good. So Jerry uh, was obsessed with that, and he swore someday he was going to kill that dentist.
0: Paisley didn't end up killing the dentist. Instead, in March 1993, he turned himself in. He was subsequently convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. By late 1994, Paisley was 53. He had no chance of getting out, no chance of leniency or a reduced sentence. He was going to die behind bars. That's when he figured, fuck it. What do I have to lose? And he started talking. Next time on Missing in Alaska. Did they blow him up? I don't know. Did JB have him blown up? I don't know. I know I took a fucking package up there and they said it was a bomb they might have been bullshitting me. Here are your three tasks for the week. First, I'd really like to get a copy of the episode of Prime Suspect that featured Jerry Paisley. I know it aired sometime between June 1992 and March 1993. Help me find it. Second, I'd also like to get a copy of a 1981 special report produced by KGUN, the Tucson ABC affiliate, called The Big Cheese, Joe Bonanno's Notes. Finally, I mentioned earlier that an undercover reporter witnessed Jerry Paisley's wedding to Peggy Begich. I believe that reporter is still alive, possibly living in the UK, but I haven't been able to find him. His name is Alex Dressler, D-R-E-H-S-L-E-R. If you know him, contact us. You can reach us by phone at 1-833-MIA-TIPS. That's one 642 8477 Again, one 642 8477 Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deccant is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam T Garden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walczak. You can find me on Twitter at, at @JohnWalczak. J O N W A L C Z A K. Footage for this episode was provided by NBC and the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. Special thanks to the Alaska and Polar Regions Collections and Archives at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeartMedia and Greenfort Media.